Tonight we're looking at John chapter 6 and verses 51 to 56. I will read those verses again to you. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no flesh in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. I want to make a couple of general points and then a few specific points. And the first is this, that clearly as we see by the reactions of the various listeners to Jesus, many of whom found this all too much to take, we see clearly that no one can understand the words of Jesus here and certainly receive them without the help of the Holy Spirit. Now that is true, of course, of all the scriptures, but it is is manifestly true and obviously true when it comes to such a difficult uh, saying as what the Lord Jesus Christ says here. We cannot understand God's word without the help of the Holy Spirit and also as part of that without obeying what the word says. And if we listen with unbelief, then immediately we put ourselves in the same ranks as those Jews who were listening, who quarreled among themselves. They couldn't make it out. They didn't want to make it out. And they found fault with what Jesus said. Now, Jesus is clearly not advocating cannibalism when he speaks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Rather, he is explaining what true faith in him means, what it is. I think perhaps the pithiest explanation of this is some words of John Calvin, who says that faith is the mouth and the stomach of the soul. To eat Christ is not a crudely literalistic statement, it's a symbolic statement which tells us what faith is about. Faith is the mouth and the stomach of the soul. But you notice in this context here in John 6, uh, Jesus is well aware that his listeners, or a good part of them, are not liking what they hear and are finding fault with the symbolism. But you notice he doesn't alter the symbolism because of their unbelief. Rather, he strengthens it. So when he says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven... And the Jews begin to quarrel and to find fault. He strengthens the symbolism, makes it, we might say, more unpalatable to them. As he then talks about eating the flesh of the Son of Man and drinking his blood. Surely this is the same kind of spiritual process which takes place when he speaks parables. The parables are there to make it easier for those in whom the Holy Spirit is at work 
but also in judicial blindness to shut the minds of those in whom the Holy Spirit is not at work and therefore they are left in their sins. Christ is not going to play to the world's tune. He is going to continue to speak and to teach the truths that concern himself in the way that he sees we need. And we see by the end of this passage that we will either be attracted to or repelled by his teaching. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. But Simon Peter, speaking for the others, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In a sense, what we're saying is that this passage is a very dividing passage, a very dividing part of the scripture. Clearly, it speaks to and blesses and helps those whose hearts God has opened to understand it. And if we're still in our sins, and resolutely so, we will not begin to appreciate what is said here. So we pray to the Holy Spirit to help us this evening. And secondly, we need as a general comment to notice that the passage comes at the end of a long, we may say, sermon of Christ, dwelling on the teaching that comes out of his feeding of the 5,000 miraculously from a few loaves and fish. That miracle he now begins to apply in teaching. And what he's doing here in this sermon is this. He's, from all angles, repeatedly working and reworking certain themes. Because, above all else, he wants us to get the point that we should really understand who he is and what it is to have faith in him. And so the first part of John 6, the part we didn't read, uh, which uh, goes from uh, verse 14 onwards, I'm talking about the teaching element here, uh, verse 14, the miracle there of the uh, Jesus um, walking on the water and then the calming of the storm and then Jesus Christ talking about the bread uh, that comes down from heaven and so on. The first part reminds us that the Lord Jesus Christ is the creator God. He is one with the Father who stills the storm and who creates things, de novo, out of nothing. Then the second part of John 6, uh, we might say very broadly speaking, from verse 26 through to verse 51, where we took up our reading, is the Lord Jesus Christ making it clear that he is not only God Almighty, but he is also one who's come down from God. So we have here an insight into the Trinity. Although that word Trinity is not used, it's quite clear that he is God, and yet he's come from God, and he speaks of the Father. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. And then thirdly, we see in the passage we're looking at tonight that Jesus uh, teaches that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And we have him actually within the second and third parts of the uh, discourse here, pulling together two very different types in the history 
of Israel, in the narratives of it, in the Pentateuch, and all that went on. Firstly, he pulls together the type of the manna, and secondly, he pulls together the type of the sacrifices, the sacrificial system, and shows that he is actually the fulfillment of both. And so he moves from talking about the living bread to saying the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. But now let's come to some more specific points and hopefully to just begin to apply it a little bit more to the blessing of our souls. Firstly, what Jesus is showing here in the language that he uses, which is sacramental language, it's not literal language, it's symbolic language, he's showing us that the heart of faith in him is to appropriate to ourselves the merits of his death. I know that's rather a long statement, but we cannot really reduce it to less. The heart of faith in Christ is to appropriate or take to ourselves the merits of his death. So he says, he puts it firstly negatively in this passage that we're reading. Verse 53, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's putting it negatively. If this hasn't happened to you, if you haven't done this, then you have no spiritual life unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. And then in verse 54, so that we get it, because he's working the whole thing round from different angles, he then puts it positively. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And in that last phrase, we see that the life he's talking about is not merely animal life, It's spiritual life. It's life that goes on into eternity. I will raise him up at the last day. And then we need to note, it's a point perhaps it's not so clear in our English version, but apparently in the original Greek language, the tenses that are used for eat and drink are aorist, which means basically they are once and for all acts. They're things which have to happen once and for all. A once for all happening, a once for all act. Unless you have eaten, unless you have drunk, you have no life in you. We might just compare these verses with a question that was asked Jesus earlier on in the discourse in verse 28. As they said to him, what shall we do? that we may work the works of God. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. It's a once for all act to believe in him to the saving of your soul. And in a sense, that's what this chapter is about. And it's working in different ways. Jesus is preaching it through different means through different illustrations, using the various types and shadows of the Old Testament to show that you and I must do this. And in in a sense, this whole chapter is one big invitation to do this. And it's full of invitation. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. The one who comes to me, I will by no means 
cast out. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And therefore we have to ask ourselves tonight, each of us, have you, have I, have each one of us appropriated Christ, taken Christ to ourselves, taken to ourselves what he did for us on the cross and all the merits of his death? Have you, have we each eaten and drunken of Christ in that sense? And then secondly, we see, because it's clearly here in the symbolism, and incidentally we notice what the evangelist John says in verse 4, just before all this happens, he says, Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. That's a very significant statement. Because the best way to understand this, this kind of symbolism of appropriating Christ is to see Jesus, what he is saying here is that he is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. When he speaks about eating flesh and drinking blood, he is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. And We looked earlier on at Exodus chapter 12. And we just refreshed our minds, did we not, as to what went on on the Passover. This is a passage, incidentally, that's looking back to the Passover. It's not talking about the Lord's Supper in and of itself. There's no basis for the false doctrine of transubstantiation here. It's looking back to the Passover. Even as when we take the Lord's Supper, we look back to the cross. So at this point, Jesus is still in the shadow of the Sinaitic covenant and he's looking back to the Passover but he's saying I am the fulfillment of that I am the lamb I am the Passover lamb that lamb which was to be taken roughly speaking each household Uh, depending on the numbers of course some households could come together but they were to take a lamb without blemish a male of the first year they were to kill it They were to apply the blood upon the doorposts and the lintel. And where that blood was, the angel of death on the night of Passover would would in fact pass over the house. And the inhabitants would be spared. They would not be spared because they are Jews. Because the Jews were as sinful as the Egyptians. And in fact, as we read on in the Pentateuch, we realize that they were worshipping the gods of the Egyptians, many of them. And they found that hard to put it behind them. They weren't spared because they were Jews. They were spared because they sheltered under the blood. They sheltered with that blood of the Passover lamb over them. And they had appropriated to themselves in the most practical way possible the benefits of the death of that lamb. They'd eaten him, roasted in fire, along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs because they were in haste on the night of the Lord's Passover. And when God sees the sign, God passes over and the plague doesn't come upon them to destroy their firstborn, though it did come upon the Egyptians. So everyone who ate of that Passover lamb and sheltered under the blood was saved from the destroyer, but the rest were judged. The rest were judged because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, takes up this theme, does he not, in his, the fifth chapter of that letter, when he says, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And what he's doing here in speaking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood is to deepen and make more extensive, as it were, the idea of personal appropriation of Christ and the necessity of that, the absolute necessity of that, to avert God's wrath from us. To avert from us the wrath of God which is due to our sins. Because our sins deserve wrath, whoever we are, whether Jew or Gentile, whether from a Christian home or a non-Christian home. We deserve wrath and we need a lamb to take our place, to come under the wrath of God, to propitiate the anger of God. And it has to be a perfect lamb. It has to be a lamb that God will accept as a sacrifice. And of course no animal will do when it comes to that. All the animal sacrifices pointed to the holy, harmless, and spotless Lamb of God, even Jesus Christ himself, who is now the vicarious atonement for our sins. So you see, Jesus is deliberately and clearly alluding here to the Passover Lamb. And they get it, of course. They get it. His listeners get it. This is one of the issues we'll just look at in a moment. As we look thirdly at the fact that Jesus Christ is challenging their unbelieving mindset. He's not ignoring it. He's actually challenging it. The heart of faith in Christ is to appropriate the merits of his death. He helps us to understand that in terms of himself being the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. And then you'll notice that he deliberately sets out to, as it were, pull off the scabs and to get into the pus and into the evil thinking of their unbelief. And notice how he does this. He employs what we might call shock tactics. We've already seen what one of those shock tactics is, to speak in language that is so strongly symbolic and yet uh, could it easily be misinterpreted by someone who was out to misinterpret it eating the flesh of the Son of Man and drinking his blood. But you'll notice, secondly, another shock tactic. Again, we would need to know the original language, but apparently the commentators tell us that the word there used for eat is a word that means literally noisy feeding. We might say munching and crunching. Jesus is not sparing their spiritual religious nerves here. He's laying it on thick to crunch and munch my flesh, to drink my blood. And that leads us to another shock tactic. Of course, it was utterly forbidden under the old covenant, and indeed earlier than that, to drink blood. A Jew would never drink blood in Leviticus And chapter 17 and verse 10, for example, there are other places, of course, I could quote from. But in this particular place, it says, Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwells among you, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. 
for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for your soul. That's a a mosaic stipulation. It's abrogated now with the coming of Christ and the new covenant. But in those days, it was an absolute. And yet here is Jesus speaking symbolically, of course, about drinking his blood He's really driving home the point. He's driving it home that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrifice, the fulfillment of the Passover meal, and he's so much the fulfillment that all the old stipulations are now going to be laid aside because he is fulfilling and replacing the sacrificial system with himself. He's going to do that at the cross. And he's challenging their mindset, which is simply this, to to rest in their religion, to rest in all their religious ideas, and to feel rather proud of themselves and proud of their heritage. He's reminding them that all these things move on. They all come to a climax in him. It's very similar, of course, to the sermon of Stephen in Acts 7. But you notice that this is their mindset. And he's challenging it earlier in John 6. For example, in John 6, they talk, yes, very pious language about um, our fathers at manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread to eat. What sign are you going to perform? And Jesus says to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. They were resting in religious ideas and religious traditions. They were mixing it up, in fact. But he reminds them that the truth is that the Father sent the manna, and the Father has now sent something even better than the manna, the bread of God, which is he who comes down from heaven. You see, he's challenging their mindset. Their mindset to rest in their religion, to rest in their self-religious effort and in their heritage. And dear friends, it is so possible to make that mistake even in these new covenant days. It is quite possible to come to an evangelical church, an evangelical cause, to come from an evangelical background and to simply rest in your religious heritage or rest in your effort somehow to come into all this. And instead of appropriating personally Christ as your saviour, instead of personally believing on him as the propitiation for your sins, instead of personally coming into such union with him that, that such alarming language as this, eating his flesh, drinking his blood, becomes true of you. It's so easy to just be religious and not come to Christ. That's what he's challenging. And you know, quite a lot of them, although they may not have been able to articulate all the theological points, they knew deep down that's what he was getting at. There were a number of things in this discourse they did not like. They did not like him correcting them, of course, as to what the giving of the manna was about. 
They did not like the thought of Jesus as the fulfillment of the types. That offended them. This is the carpenter's son. Who is this man? Is not this Jesus, verse 42, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? They didn't like that. They didn't like the fact that Jesus asserts his sovereignty and salvation. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will no wise cast out. They didn't like that. that it, it, it offended them, as it always does offend sinners. The thought that salvation is not in their hands. It's in the hands of Almighty God. And they found it particularly galling that what was so central to them in their religious thinking, the sacrificial system, the temple, the priesthood, that he has the nerve to say, I am the fulfillment of this. And the nerve to bring together all these types and say, it's all about me. And unless you appropriate me, unless you take me into your heart and into your life, unless you believe on me, You have no life in you. And then to assert that this life is eternal life. All this offended them greatly. And many of them went back. They'd got the point as far as they were going to get it. And they didn't like it. And they didn't want any more of it. Well, we trust that is not your reaction to these straight words of Christ. We trust that Jesus has come into your heart, that you have believed upon him, that you're not ashamed of the gospel. You're not ashamed of the death of Christ for sinners and for sin. You're not ashamed to confess him as your Lord and Savior. We trust that this feast is one that you would indeed enjoy. That is Jesus I'm talking about. This feast of Christ, that he is the living bread. That he's uh, John Wycliffe's version, I think, translates this as quick bread or lively bread. That there's, there's a delight, there's a, a life-giving quality in Christ, in knowing Christ. That you are not feeding on junk food, as it were, the junk food of this world and the rubbish of this world. And you're not even feeding on what appears to be spiritual but isn't, just religious traditions. Some of those traditions may be good traditions, by the way. Not every tradition is a bad tradition, but it it doesn't save you. We trust that this to you is a high and noble and delightful meal. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. In the Song of Solomon, we hear this invitation. Eat, O friends. Drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. Is that what you have done with the Lord Jesus, with his saving grace and love and compassion dying for you, eaten and drunk abundantly? And now under the new covenant, of course, we don't look back to the Passover, but we look back to the cross And the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper help us to do that as they symbolize to us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, broken for us and the blood shed for us.